Well, welcome to the Light Reading Podcast. I'm Jeff Baumgartner, a senior editor at Light Reading. I'm Jack Burton, a principal, one of the principals at Broadband Success Partners. And this is Jay Rolls. I'm the CTO at Broadband Success Partners. Great. Hey, gents. Uh, good to have you on the podcast again. Um, glad we have an opportunity to talk and uh, try to cover quite a bit of ground on uh, what's going on in the world of fiber build-outs, uh, cable network upgrades, and maybe a little bit on you know, what's new in uh, fixed wireless access. So we'll have quite a bit to, to get to. But um, before we dig into that, uh, just to for everybody who's listening here and get them up to speed, give us just another brief description on what Broadband Success Partners is and, and what you do. Sure. Um, we're a, a telecommunications consulting firm, primarily serving the investment community. That would be uh, private equity funds, investment trusts, uh, banks, and others looking to invest in the broadband space. Uh, what we help to do is help those companies look at assets that they're planning on investing in and giving them a feel for, I guess, the quality of the asset, whether they're doing things in a, well, a um, proper and workmanlike way, uh, helping them with their technical valuations and that sort of thing. We also do other consulting in the broadband space, but... Uh, that has really fallen off in the past couple of years as we've concentrated on doing this for the investment community. Right. And our, and our work is typically known as tech due diligence. So, I mean, that's the phrase that's used the most, but I joke like uh, that we like to pop the hood and look at the engine. So. Okay. Well, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the um, uh, projects that you've been involved with, but just from a uh, high level, uh, Maybe you can talk a little bit about the amount of activity you're seeing in this area that you're focused on. Um, and then also, uh, you were, the group was at uh, Metro Connect recently. And, uh, you know, I think we had had some side conversations before, but it sounds like you had a ton of meetings there. But uh, what were some of the big uh, takeaways from you from that show and kind of how it relates to, you know, what you're focused on? Sure. So to start out, um, yes, the this space is very busy now. It's you know it doesn't uh, you can read the headlines and tell that there's a lot of activity. We actually worked on 32 deals last year, so we were very very busy last year. Um, and so uh, Metro Connect in the U.S. is sort of the most important show really for us in the U.S. each year. Um, they bring they bring together a lot of folks. I think there were between thirteen and fifteen hundred folks, and um, it's it's sort of not your typical trade show format. Um, there's actually you know we had thirty five client meetings there, so there is a little bit of a, a for lack of a better term, speed dating kind of uh, <laughs> facilitation yeah. that happens at the at the at the show. And so, you know, we had, a, we had our own little reserve seating area and, uh, you know, it's, it's just great because everybody's there. We're mostly talking to our clients and prospective clients. So as Jack said, private equity companies, infrastructure funds, investors, um, and this is, in, this is in fiber and coax and telcos, fixed wireless data centers, uh, towers, you know, lots, lots <laughs> you of name infrastructure. It. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Well, um, yeah, you said you had a ton of deals uh, that you did last year. Yeah, I talked to a lot of you know, current prospective folks at uh, Metro Connect, but, um, you know, I saw on your website that Broadband Success Partners had a role to play in the recent uh, joint venture involving AT&T and BlackRock um, with the initial focus on a million, a million and a half locations outside of uh, AT&T's legacy footprint. Um, well, since you're allowed to reveal that you are involved, it would be interesting to find out, you know, if you can tell us more about your involvement there and, and a little bit more about the model that's being used in that instance. Well, uh, we can talk about uh, our involvement, but uh, as far as the model, we can only talk about what's been publicly released. So okay. we'll try to do that. Uh, our involvement was, of course, uh, looking at their plans, seeing if they made sense, uh, seeing if um, AT&T and uh, its backing getting into a brand new out of the footprint uh, kind of venture made sense. And if they had the resources to do that, you know, kind of uh, um, you would assume that a company the size of AT&T would, but because they're treating this as a completely new entity, um, we had to look at that as if it was a startup. Oh, I see. Uh, so that's the kind of thing we looked at. Their model um, includes operating an open access network um, in the areas that they build. So other providers could come in and offer services alongside AT&T being one of those providers off offering services. Interesting. Yeah. Now, are we, I wanted to talk a little bit about the open access stuff, right? Because I think that there's uh uh, it seems relatively uh, less in use, you know, maybe in the U.S., North America than in uh, in Europe, but it seems to be getting some traction here. But are you starting to see that model applied uh, elsewhere in some of the projects you're you're working on, or and, and kind of what's the the primary reason to pursue that model, you know, AT and T, you know, notwithstanding, just in general. Well, there, there are several reasons why. Number one, um, the municipalities, the governments love it. So it's, it's easy to get governmental approval because the governments like open access. Um, it's a, a, a source of extra revenue, you know, beyond what your customers, comparing it to a company that's just doing their, their own access. Um, you would potentially have more, a larger universe of customers getting on your wires. Uh, again, the cities like it because there's only one set of wires being put in, only one time the streets getting dug up and so forth. Um, you know, that that's attractive to the municipalities. But there are several different flavors of this open access. One might involve dark fiber being made available to other providers. Another might involve, um, you know, layer two service where the open access provider would actually install the equipment in each premise uh, and then just basically switch the uh, services to the appropriate provider, which then does the core services for it. Um, and then there, there's even one that we looked at where the open access provider was just providing empty conduits where others could pull, pull their own fiber through. Uh, just just the conduits and and yeah they would they would just say hey if you want to use it you know 
uh, come through us or how to, yeah, that's. Yeah, that, that's okay. it. Uh, put your fiber in, use our ducts. We'll, we'll dig up the streets, you know, we'll dig up the streets once and then everybody can use it. Uh, Jay worked on one recently in Colorado. He could tell you about. Yeah, there, there was one we worked on in Colorado that was very interesting. Um, once we started digging into it, it seemed like it was a brand new startup, really. And it seemed like everybody was a software guy. Um, they relied on their outside uh, contractor to not only build the fiber network, but also to source all the materials for the build and even finance part of the build. And so uh, these software guys were all about, hey, we're going to cloudify all the things that third parties are going to interact with to offer services through a through a layer two kind of connection, and um, we're gonna we're gonna make it really easy for people. We're gonna have really clean, simple to use APIs, the the most cloud forward you know network I've ever seen. You know now building from scratch, but that was interesting. Um, another layer two model we saw that was interesting is where the uh, the network builder uh, was not offering services. So they were completely dependent on the third party RSPs or retail service providers. And they would they would do the install. So they would show up at the homes with a with a with a uniform that had a had a uh, Velcro chest patch and they would slap <laughs> the logo on their uniform of whatever company they were representing as they did the install. Really? Thought, okay. That was kind of clever. Yeah magnetic signs <laughs> on the trucks. It was a uh... Pretty funny. Wow. Okay. Is now is that uh, pretty unique, or I mean, we're we seeing a lot more of this um, sort of uh, angle, you know, in, into the the market. The first I'd seen something like that. That one was okay. actually outside the U.S. But oh, okay. Well, and and uh, in general, though, it seems like uh, I mean, are you seeing a lot of pickup of the open access? You know, even whatever variation it is, you know, kind of picking up. You know, in the uh, the U.S., because again, we've seen seen this model in Europe, you know, Australia, some other regions of the world. I, I think so, just because in 2021 we didn't work on any, and I think last year we worked on five. Um, so just, I mean, just based on that alone, I wouldn't say it's taking you know taking the country by storm or anything, but. You know, it's a it's a theme that we're seeing more of. It's a theme we talk we heard talk about at Metro Connect quite a bit. Uh, people are were it was a it was a topic that people were discussing for sure. Yeah, in twenty in twenty twenty one, we did work on one that was a uh, okay. Okay. a dark a dark fiber play. That one. Okay. All right. Well, good. All right. So a lot of fiber activity, uh, open access. Um, the other area I, I do focus on here is what's going on with the, the cable guys and all their HFC plant, right? And uh, it feels like the the amount of that we have activity, you know, now that we're past, you know, the early phases of the pandemic when they kind of had to back burner some stuff, Every everything's kind of, uh, some of the next gen stuff has moved onto the front burner and we're starting to see uh, operators push ahead with, upgrade activity, at least their plans kind of laying it out, um, even if they're not fully downstream with it yet. But um, we are seeing that there's a lot of variations in the ways that some of these operators are tackling uh, the upgrades. So, um, you know, I mean, what do you think about that in general? Because in the past, uh, you know, from DOCSIS 
one to one dot one to two to three um and three dot one was pretty uniform uh in terms of how you got there but uh you know in terms of what you're going next i mean some might do doxis three uh uh you can say it 3.5. <laughs> <laughs> so, I know you've called it 3.5. It's like, yeah, so we'll, we'll call it 3.5, but uh, or going all the way to 4.0. But uh, anyway, uh, definitely a different set of scenarios. But, uh, you know, in, in a, you know, so you guys both have a lot of cable experience. Uh, I mean, what's what's so different about this? And, and what do you think about some of the strategies that are being put together? Jay, I'll uh, let you go first on that. I think that the... Uh, first of all, everybody had, there's a million different starting points. So uh, I, most people realize that. So not, not all <laughs> networks are equal, obviously. And that's, that's really important to, to keep in mind. But I think that, you know, those, those upgrade paths, which were all inside plant upgrade paths, you, you didn't have to touch the cable plant. I think they were relatively straightforward. All the steps we're looking at now, most all of them involve, uh, outside plant work. And so immediately you're into the realm of um, more complicated and more expensive. And uh, that I think is going to give people pause. And before they spend those dollars, they're going to try and figure out, you know, what's the best way to make these large investments. The, the pandemic, I think, uh, sort of caused an interesting trigger that really kicked all this off. And that was you know, for the longest time, streaming video services were causing downstream uh, node splits because of downstream traffic. But the pandemic started really flipping that and, and driving node splits that, that were driven by upstream constraints. And the upstream has started to become an Achilles heel, you know, for the industry. So a lot, almost all of these, you know, options that we talk about all address the upstream as part of what, you know, you get out of that. And so I think that's a primary driver. Um, you have, I, I think there's a lot of life left in 3.1. That's why I call it 3.5. There is no such thing, but um, 3.5 just representing doing high splits and, and maybe going to 1.2 gig. Um, and so that's a, I think that's a relatively modest activity that's $100 per home pass. Maybe, maybe with, you know, 15, 20, $25 of offset because of saved nodes splits. So what might look like a hundred is actually only 80 or $75 per home pass. Oh, when you um, factor that in. Okay. Yeah. When you factor that in. So um, that, you know, I think most are looking at that charter. Obviously the first two thirds of the charter plan is exactly that. Um and, and I wouldn't be surprised if that gets more, buys more runway than people uh, give it credit for right now. And we'll, you know, people are diving in and, and we'll find, find out. Different operators, like I said, have different operate as starting points. And so you see a charter going in a different direction from a Comcast, but I think both strategies make sense when you consider, you know, where they started from. Right. And I was I wanted to talk a little bit about charter, right? You had mentioned, uh, you know, they have kind of this multifaceted, multi-phase uh, sort of approach to their so-called network evolution plan, right? And uh, you know, in terms of what option they're going to use in a certain portion of their footprint versus another portion of the footprint, um, but they haven't been real clear in terms of, uh, 
you know, why it makes sense to, to go with, you know, one set of uh, upgrade activity in one portion of the plant versus another. Um, my assumption was, well, you know, maybe it's, it depends on what the plant condition is, what the, uh, the amount of, what the competition looks like in a particular market. But uh, do you have any theories in terms of, uh, uh, you know, why they kind of went with this approach versus kind of a unified uh, plan where it's like, well, here's, here's what we're going to do across the board. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any one single cause for that, but I, I suspect that some of the aspects are, one is just timing. Um, you, you know, you could not just hit the street right now and start doing Ford Auto upgrades everywhere. So um, that equipment is just not quite ready for prime time. We're very close, but, and so some of that is timing. Um, I also suspect that this, this sort of what I call DOCSIS 3.5 which seems to show a lot of promise, there's some interest in, hey, let's get going. Let's try that out. Let's see how that goes. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they get far into it and realize the back third, which they've said will be 4.0, they may, they may postpone that a little bit if, if the first two thirds goes well enough, right? Um, so I think it's optionality. You know, they leave, you know, and some of the work they're doing on the first thir two thirds can be accretive to what they do in the back third, the 4.0, because as soon as the 1.8 uh, amps, uh, ampl 1.8 gigahertz amplifiers are ready, they'll they'll be deploying that as part of their again 3.5, you know, high split upgrade. They won't turn on the 1.8 gigahertz. They'll probably run those in 1.2 gigahertz mode. Um, uh, you know, I confirmed with the Technetics guys that that's very much possible that how you run these things oh you don't um, have to just take advantage of the full well but you won't be able to take advantage because none of the passives will be able to pass oh, 1.8 okay. gigahertz right so gotcha. so right. no 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 reason to run power up at those level at those frequencies if if you're not using it right day one but those will be ready for 4.0 upgrade later on and and charter alluded to that a little bit in their in their uh their long call in, in December. Great. And I thought, um, now one thing with uh, Charter and Comcast, I mean, granted they are, have some alignment there with, in some aspects with like the virtual CMTS and going with remote five for uh, the DAA component. But uh, of course, uh, you know, they are going in different directions with the different flavors of DOCSIS 4.0, you know, Charter is going to do extended Spectrum Doxis, you know, Comcast, of course, is uh, going with full duplex uh, Doxis. And um, in the past, we've, we, we have talked about being more complex, maybe more risky. Um, uh, is there any change of opinion there? And, and to speculate, do you think you might see somebody outside of Comcast adopting it? Um, and one, one thing that came up, I think it was just Yesterday, there was a report about Mediacom doing some tests with FTX like later this year. So I thought that was a little well, bit of a surprise, could be significant. But uh, yeah, just kind of get your your thoughts on kind of where FTX is in the market. Yeah. I think uh, the most important thing there, the big, the big change in FTX is the availability of the FTX amplifier. Before there was an FTX amplifier, which Comcast, I guess, announced and sort of demonstrated at uh, last year's Cable Tech Expo. 
with an FDX amplifier, you don't have to necessarily do node plus zero when you're doing your upgrade. And right, because that was a non-starter, right? Yeah, I mean, having For to do one. node plus zero is what drove away all the other operators from the FDX uh, bandwagon. Now that not having to do node plus zero, maybe they can do node plus three or maybe even more, um, there'll be more interest because nobody wants to go change all their taps and passives unless they absolutely have to. And by you know running your upstream and downstream in the same spectrum, you don't have to relocate that upstream those formerly downstream, now upstream channels to the top of the band needing more than 1.2 gigahertz. So um, an operator doing FDX gets to avoid a huge bandwidth upgrade for some period of time. I see. And yeah, I think, there's, I think there's pros and cons. Jack touched on some of the pros. Another big pro of FDX is you don't have to necessarily touch all your passives. That's, that's a big deal. Right, that's that's just a big deal. Um, I think the 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 con is just that it's a riskier path. We don't have a field trial that's been run yet with these amplifiers, these FDX amplifiers. Um, it's a little less straightforward technology-wise than what we've done in the past. And um, you know, for ESDs, very much how we've always done it. You know, we had 550 plant, then we had 650, 750, 860, one gig, 1.2 gig. 1.8 is just another extension. It gets harder each time, but that you know, that's kind of what the industry is used to. Um, so I think it's less risk to the 1.8, um, but uh, there are some advantages to the FDX approach um, that I, really in the last three to six months I've, I've kind of warmed up to. I was a little, a little more skeptical last year, um, but it's riskier. Okay, well, one thing uh, with Comcast has been the champion of FTX from the very beginning, right? And I think we've always kind of wondered, well, why is that? <laughs> and uh, I mean, what what are some? There might there's multiple reasons probably, but Jay, I think you know, you've talked about kind of a theory about why FTX might make uh, the most sense for Comcast, right? So uh, I don't know if you want to expand on that a little bit. I thought that was an interesting idea. Well, um, I, and this wasn't my original idea. I've been hearing about this a little bit, but I think that it's, it, is, <laughs> it is interesting that it traces all the way back to video heritage, you know, and what we all did with digital video in the 2000s. And so Comcast did two notable differences than a lot of the industry. One, they did not deploy switch digital video, um, but instead, you know, deployed tens, of, tens and tens of millions of digital terminal adapters, the very small, you know, palm sized uh, digital devices that are one way, they're not intelligent. Uh, you can't have a simple guide on them, but they're basically just digital tuners. And if uh, my understanding is if you do a high split, a typical classic 204 megahertz high split, uh, that, that will stomp on the out of band signaling to those DTAs and, and basically just take, take them offline. So um, that drives uh, Comcast more of in a mid split direction, but you know, I don't think mid split is enough upstream in the long term to, to solve everybody's needs. So yeah, so I think that might be an evolution of what you know started uh, Comcast down a, a bit of a different path. 
Yeah. And the DTAs, right? I remember covering that whole aspect of the industry and the whole idea was to get rid of uh, all the analog, right? Video so that, yeah, you can just go all digital, but yeah, you needed these old channel zappers that uh, kind of maybe choked the, uh, the plant a little bit, the qualm <laughs> delivery yep. Yep. for yeah, a while. The, uh, and there's still a lot of them out there. Yeah. But Jeff. The specific problem is the, the, oh. the pilot signal that controls those DTAs. Mm -hmm. That's, that's in spectrum, which, you lose when, once you go to high split. Okay. Interesting. Okay. And then one last thing I wanted to talk about was what's going on in the fixed wireless access side, right? Um, we've been, we know the story about what Verizon and T-Mobile have been doing for home broadband. Uh, they've had some success and pretty good growth there. But uh, what are some of the trends you're seeing with fixed wireless access uh, in your neck of the woods and, and, uh, including, you know, the differences in rural or dense urban areas. Yeah. Uh, we've actually done projects for both. Uh, we, we've looked at some very, very rural, you know, out in farm country, uh, fixed wireless deployments where, uh, they're, they're doing 50 to a hundred, uh, uh, megabit per second services, over over the fixed wireless, sometimes lower, sometimes thirty, um, and uh, it's it's pretty popular. It's uh, it's easier to do certainly than building a cable system or building a fiber system. Um, the infrastructure is a little different. Uh, we've seen a number of those, and then we've also seen in urban areas uh, going from building to building with um, usually using millimeter wave uh, type hardware or sometimes millimeter wave and conventional, um, you know, 2.5 or 3.5 to 6 gigahertz microwave uh, underneath. And um, those are also gaining a lot of traction. There's a lot of uh, apartment buildings linked with those services. Uh, I can't say anything about Starry because we didn't work on anything like on, on them or anything exactly like them, but yeah. they're having some financial problems primarily due to... Uh, financial management matters rather than technical. But from the technical side, uh, both work, the uh, rural and the urban, as long as you're reasonable in your engineering and you're not expecting to deploy millimeter wave out in farm country where you need really large uh, coverage areas for your towers. And, um, and you're not expecting to go very far between your buildings using millimeter wave in urban areas. Keep in mind that Jack's talking about purpose-built fixed wireless broadband networks, not 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 the MNOs using their spare yeah. capacity on the, you know, not the top three AT&T, T-Mobile, and Verizon using spare capacity, which is is a whole other theme, of right? Course. Well, right. Yeah. well there the the big difference between the two isn't so much how it works or even the uh, the end user equipment, which is very similar especially if you're putting in indoor stuff. Um, it's just the uh, the out the tower network, the outdoor network. In the case of the MNOs, their network's already built. They're going to use what's there. Um, maybe with some mm -hmm. augmentation for millimeter wave, you know, in some of those urban areas. Um, but uh, the principles are the same. And I, I think they all work. The only question is, at what point uh, will the capacity become a problem? 
that's really for all of them. Right. And well, and, and with the examples you're talking about, I mean, is it unlicensed, licensed to blend, uh, you know, cause I mean, <laughs> license spectrum is, uh, very valuable, very expensive. So, uh, what's kind of the approach with some of the companies you've been working with? Yeah. Uh, most of them use both. Okay. All right. They'll, they'll have uh, some lightly licensed, you know, they'll get a regional or national license where they can put up whatever paths they want. Some are, uh, really, really the old style of fixed point to point license, and then they'll run an unlicensed underneath that. Yeah, one, one deal we worked on that kind of fascinated me is they had several hundreds of towers and less than 20 of the towers were fiber connected. So so envision a very, very rich mesh point-to-point microwave backhaul network on the tops of these towers. I mean, think about tower to tower, you always have perfect line of sight, right? So some of the license use we've seen has been in the... Uh, in the backhaul, uh, the wireless backhaul to reach all those towers. Interesting. Okay, great. Well, that's an interesting aspect of the, uh, the business. Um, we'll have to see, like you said, on the capacity side, you know, when, when does, when does that become an issue and do they have to build fiber at some point, uh, further down the road to support that? So a lot of the uh, fixed wireless companies we've looked at are actually building fiber, underneath their fixed wireless networks to say dense, dense uh, residential developments. Like kind of on a more targeted basis, yes. kind of complementary. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Almost like a hybrid. And, and related wireless versus wired fiber. You know, we talked about fiber. It, it's probably also interesting to point out that at, at Metro connect, one theme I, I sort of finally wrapped my head around is if you're a small to medium sized cable operator, but you have your eyes on some kind of exit path or sale eventually, you, unfortunately, you need to be thinking about fiberizing because that's what the investors are looking for. I see. It's just vastly different than large, you know, large MSOs, but, but for small, medium guys, um, you know, that's what the, that's where the money is. That's what the investors want to see. I see. They don't want to come in and go, well, you're, uh, you're a little bit behind the eight ball here. We're not <laughs> with, even uh, if you can prove, which I constantly try to do, that it's a perfectly yeah. viable, competitive network uh, to yeah. fiber. You know, good, a well-run HFC network. Um, that's not the sentiment of the of the investment community. Okay. Very good. Well, I think that's where we're going to leave it today, gentlemen. So uh, thanks again for jumping on the podcast, uh, Jay and Jack. Glad we're able to to get this together again. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. All right. Thanks.